Thank you very much. Mandy, how's everybody doing today? Beautiful Sunday morning. It's my kind of weather. It's a little chillier than it's been in the last couple of weeks, so I really woke up this morning feeling blessed. Uh, but like Mandy said, my name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you all to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. Special welcome to anybody who's visiting for the first time this morning. I see a few new faces. Glad to have you here with us. And also, if you are listening to us through our website or through our podcast, you're also welcome to come uh, and worship with us here live on Sunday morning. Well, before I begin, I just want to plug, uh, if you have a bulletin, if you've been tracking along with us the last couple of weeks, you know that tomorrow is the first day of our churchwide 21-day fast. Um, now, around here, you don't have to do anything other than treat people with respect. You're not forced to do anything at all. Um, but usually, as a church, we've spent some time uh, getting into a rhythm of fasting and prayer throughout our year. And so tomorrow starts our, uh, our corporate uh, fast. And fasting is simply an opportunity for us to lean in to the Lord and lean away from some other things. We understand that food, along with lots of other things, meet an emotional need for us. And when we pull back from those things, essentially we starve ourselves of those things and we look to get whatever we were getting from those things, we look to get that from Jesus. And so over the years, we've, uh, you know, found it helpful to lean away from food. Some of you lean away from specific types of food, social media, certain hobbies and things, generally things that compete for your attention and your affection, compete with God for your attention and affection. So again, you don't have to do that, you don't have to fast with us, but we're inviting you to engage in this fast. And we typically pair that fast also with a 21-day challenge where we ask you to strategically lean into some things. So if you came in today and you got a bulletin, you know in that bulletin was one of these uh, 21-day fast, 21-day challenge sheets. And basically, this is an opportunity for you to write down what you intend to fast or the areas that God is dealing with you on. And also, just make a commitment to engage our prayer meetings over the next few weeks and engage serving at Restoration Ministries with the food pantry and Harvey that we partner with as well as a, an opportunity for you to ask for prayer, put a prayer request down on here. And so if you've gotten one of these, it's basically two sides. It's the same thing. One's for you to keep, and one's for you to put in the offering bucket so that we can pray and, and know how uh, to keep you accountable for this. And so if, if you didn't get one of these, there are some on the back table. Uh, feel free to grab one of these. And just sort of make sure you fill this out as the service goes along and drop it in the offering bucket as it comes along. We're going to have an awesome day. I know what some of you are thinking, but, you know, it's a holiday tomorrow. So if you want to start a day later, we're on the honor system here. Just make sure you tackle on an extra day at the end of it. We're, we're watching you, okay? We're going to see all your barbecue uh, photos, and we're going to say, you owe us a day. So uh, if you want, to, you, know, you want to start a day later, go ahead and do that. There's no condemnation. This isn't supposed to be burdensome. It is, however, supposed to be challenging. And so we encourage you to engage this fast with us. Amen? Well, when I was about 18 years old, 17 or 18, I graduated from Dunbar High School in Chicago, and I moved to Champaign, Illinois, to go to University of Illinois. So one of the things I noticed when I was, uh, you know, getting settled into the dorm and getting to know some of the guys on the floor, I lived in Blaisdell Hall. Any of you of our graduates here? Just a couple. Okay, I knew, I knew there was something. I knew just a glow on those people. The rest of you, we'll figure something out. Um, but I was living in Blaisdell Hall, fourth floor. As I was walking around to get to know people, I noticed that a lot of the guys had guitars. Many of them didn't play them. They were just kind of in their room looking cool, and some of them played them. I thought, man, I want a guitar. So I called home. and I said, Dad, listen, I know what I want for Christmas. Don't worry about it. getting me anything else. I want a guitar. I want to learn guitar. So my dad had a buddy. His buddy gave me this real nice blues, hollow body you know, Carlo Rebelli, you know, jazz guitar. Has a, it's like my first guitar is this really nice guitar. So there's a brother on the floor. His name was Ian. He was a part of the uh, U of I jazz band. He said, listen, you get a guitar. I'll just kind of show you some of the basics. And so sure enough, he showed me some chords, some strum paddings, and just sort of left me to myself. And between that and buying books and stuff like that, I really took uh, to this guitar and sort of really started to get good at it. And so I thought I was doing pretty well until I started to play with other people. It's one thing to be good at guitar by yourself, but you start to play with other people, and people say, hey, you play guitar? Come jam with us, and you got to sit in with a whole band of people, and all of a sudden I realized that it's not, you know, the real test of whether or not you're a good musician is not how well you play by yourself. It's how well you play with other people, right? Trying to stay on rhythm and on beat, and some of you, 
you wouldn't consider yourself music people or particularly into music, but you've been to concerts, you engage music weekly uh, when you go to church and stuff like that, and you might not be able to particularly say what's going on, but you know when something's off, right? When things are working well, the drums and the bass and the keyboard, the singer, maybe they got a horn, maybe they got some congas, and you're like, man, I don't know what happened today, but today they nailed it. It was awesome. It was sweet. And I said, what exactly worked? I don't know. It just worked, right? In the same way, when we have off days, you might not be able to say, hey, the bass was off. You might not say the drums were too loud or those vocals. But you say something wasn't quite right. And sometimes I get home and ask my wife, hey, how was worship today? She goes, ah. I said, well, what exactly was wrong? I don't know, but it sounded like you guys were all playing a different song. And we weren't quite working together. So when it's good, it's good, but when it's bad, it's like we can't quite get, uh, can't quite get on rhythm. Some of you uh, speak publicly for a living. You know the same is true when you're giving a public address or when you're, you know, speaking and preaching. I know this full well. And some of you, if you regularly listen to my preaching, you know there's some days where everything's working well, right? All the moving parts of the sermon, me, my breathing, my reading, my speaking, my cadence, all of it's working together, and it just works. In fact, halfway through, things are going so well, I can set my notes aside, and I can pull out a phone book and read it out loud, and you'd still be inspired. (laughs) As I just read those names, you go, my, this is good, because I'm in a flow, I'm in a rhythm. But when it's bad, it's like, it doesn't matter how well prepared I am, it doesn't matter how, you know, excellent my points are. It's just I can't quite get, can't quite get going. And, you know, the same is true with public speaking. You can't find the rhythm. It's not just music and public speaking. Like sometimes our day is like that, right? Sometimes you wake up and everything's right with the world. You wake up a minute before your alarm goes off. You bound out of bed directly into your slippers You sort of coast into the bathroom and just the perfect swirl of toothpaste on the toothbrush and things. And you get downstairs and the kids have gotten themselves up. They've eaten breakfast and they're reading a book. And they've turned on the coffee maker for you and everything. All the lights are red and you got a raise. Everything is working. All the moving parts of your day are working. But on the other hand, you have some of those days where you get up 40 minutes after your alarm, toothpaste everywhere, kids gum in their hair, everything goes wrong because the moving parts of the day don't quite, don't quite work in rhythm together. It's one thing to have bad music, one thing to be out of rhythm when you're public speaking, another thing to have a bad day, but it's nothing altogether to be having a bad life. Or the moving parts of your life are not in sync. They're not talking well to each other. They're jumbled and confused. All of the big, major moving parts of your life are dancing or rallying around their own rhythm, their own beat. And some of you can't make sense of why life doesn't quite work for you. You can't make sense of why life is so frustrating, why you just can't get ahead, why you can't get going, why there's no joy in your salvation, why there's no joy in your marriage, why there's no joy in victory anymore. There's only frustration and long days that don't seem to be working, what you're probably lacking is some meaningful rhythm to your life. And because we all need rhythm in order to live the good life, I say good life around here, we don't mean opulence and wealth, fancy cars and, and, and fame, we mean the life that God intended you to live. And so if you want to live the good life, you've got to have some rhythm to it. You've got to have some rhythm to it. Now, we weren't all blessed with natural rhythm, right? And you know who you are. Sitting next to somebody who haven't quite got this. When it's time to worship, just move a few feet away from them because they're not going to be clapping right. They're not going to be singing on the right rhythm. You may not have natural rhythm, and that's okay. But all of us can get a hold of some godly rhythm to our life so that life can work and make sense. I'm calling this brand new series this week Rhythms. Rhythm is defined as a strong excuse me, regular, repeated pattern of movement or sound. I love this definition. A strong, regular, repeated pattern of movement or sound. And so when life lacks rhythm, life is hard. 
When your life lacks rhythm, your life is hard. And so the essence of what it means and the essence of what it looks like to have a life with Jesus is that we invite Jesus into our hearts. We invite Jesus into our life. And we don't just invite him into that little dusty back room where we've got all the records and the record player stored, the stuff we don't use, but we invite him into the, into the front room, the living room of our house, right in the center of things, and we say, you get to be in charge. And undoubtedly, when somebody moves in, particularly if they have, you know, the right to be in charge, they might move some stuff out. But they most certainly will move some things in. And so this is what happens. We invite Jesus to say, hey, right in the center of things, bring in what you want, kick out what you want. And on top of all that, you get to be the conductor of my life. You get to be the conductor of my heart. And if you've ever went to see a band or an orchestra or something like that, you see that conductor piping out from the middle, and he's just... He's keeping it all together. And I used to think, this is the most useless guy in the band. They have sheet music in front of them. These guys are highly paid professionals. You sit down, dude. You're in the way. But the more I got into music, I understand that this conductor, he's keeping the tempo. And at times, he looks at certain sections and goes, hey, I need some more from you. Percussions, you're dragging. Bring this thing up. And he's getting into it, he's keeping tempo, and he's keeping all these moving parts, all these sections in rhythm, and this is what Jesus does for us in our life. I love this passage of Scripture. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, Jesus says, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Let me read that again in the message transversion, uh, trans- translation, said a little bit different. Jesus asked, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burnt out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll what? Recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace, because I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, Jesus says, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Walk with me, he says. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I couldn't have put that better. And so Jesus isn't calling us to an easy life. I don't want to mislead anybody. I don't want to confuse any of you. In fact, if you do this life right, it's going to be the hardest thing you ever do. Just want to be clear about that. Jesus isn't calling us to an easy life. He's just maybe suggesting that we've made life harder than it has to be. Say that again. Jesus isn't calling us to an easy, carefree life. He's just maybe asking us not to complicate it so much. And not to make this thing harder than it already is. Jesus offers us a better way. He offers us a more excellent way. And for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about these rhythms. Not just rhythm in general, but the different moving parts of our life with Jesus that will work together to help us make sense of life. To help us move toward the good life as God intended. We'll talk about things like prayer, rhythm of prayer, rhythm of serving others, perhaps talk about a rhythm of confession in your life and other things. But today we're going to start by talking about rhythms, a rhythm specifically of engaging Christian community, a rhythm of engaging Christian community or taking what we do here seriously or more seriously. Christian community, by Christian community I mean the body of believers, this Christian community, the church is something that it's easy to forsake. And in the shuffle of life, as things get busy, as things press in on us, it's easy for us to neglect this, and it's perhaps one of the most important rhythms that we could ever establish in our life. The church, the people of God, 
the body of Christ. It's a wonderful thing, but it's often undervalued and often misunderstood. And today we're going to talk about the importance of establishing a rhythm of engaging Christian community. Turn with me this morning to Acts chapter 2 in your Bibles, because I know you have your Bibles with you, good Christian folks. But if you don't happen to have a Bible with you and you more easily follow along on your phone or on your tablet, feel free to do that. By the way, if you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to take one of the Bibles that's located on the edges of your row. Um, If you don't have one at home, feel free to take one of those Bibles home as a gift from us to you. Acts chapter 2 will also be projecting it uh, on the screens. Let me pray before I begin today. Just this microphone. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for this opportunity. What, a, what an awesome opportunity it is for me, Lord, to get to stand up here and to share your word, to bring your truth today. Lord, this is not about me. It's not about us. This is about you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak this morning. Speak to us in a way um, that connects with our hearts. And, Lord, in a room this size, I know that there's got to be somebody here who's really dealing with just some of the weight of life today, maybe grief, maybe hurts, habits, and hang-ups. Lord, I just pray uh, that, you would, that you would bring your peace this morning. And I pray, Lord, that whatever we're dealing with individually, Lord, that we can lay that down so that we can press into you this morning. And so, Father, I pray that you would put power on these words that you've given me to speak. Move the preacher out of the way this morning so that your truth and your light might shine through. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Acts chapter 2. And so, for the last couple of, our last series... We spent a little, bit time, uh, a little bit of time in the book of Acts, and if you recall, I framed the book of Acts as sort of situated in between the Gospels and st- like the epistles or the letters. And I'm talking about the New Testament. The first four books of the New Testament is sort of the life of Jesus, his ministry, uh, the stories of him teaching his disciples and preparing them to continue his ministry when he would be uh, killed, crucified, but he'd be resurrected to raise a life, ascended to heaven. And so he, wanted, he knew that this thing would need to carry on beyond him. So he equipped these guys to, to continue his ministry. And so after the Gospels, we see the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is basically the story of the establishment or the beginning or the origins of the early church. These disciples took seriously what Jesus said. They moved in power and they spread out all the world to preach the gospel and make disciples. And what happened over time is that these churches, these groups of believers would begin to spring up. And so here's an account that we're going to read today, starting at verse 42, that gives us a little snapshot, a little picture of what the early church looked like at its origins. Verse 42, they, the church, the people of God, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I love this passage. Um, I love this passage because it gives us a really clear picture of what was going on. It also gives us a really clear picture of a really healthful, healthy church. And as a pastor, like this little description here is like a pastor's dream. You know, if, if you could ever just sort of just script a church or the people that you want to pastor and lead, you want to lead a church like this. I mean, the search committee, if they're ever looking for a new pastor, this little community here would not have a problem finding a pastor because pastors would be climbing all over each other to pastor this group because there's so much Holy Spirit activity. There's so much goodwill. And this is, a, this is the, basically a picture of the ideal church. It's a picture of what we're supposed to look like and what's supposed to be contained within this local assembly. This is a picture of the local church, the local church church like this. Now, this local church is a part of a broader church, a bigger church, a more universal church, and we needn't forget that we're just one small piece of a much bigger puzzle. But for you and I, the most important aspect of community life will be the local church. Scriptures often refer to the church as the bride of Christ, which basically means that you can't 
try to get buddy-buddy with Jesus and, like, neglect his bride. It doesn't quite work that way. It's like somebody saying, Gino, I want to be best friends with you. Now, I'm making this up. That's a very creepy thing to say. Don't say that to anybody. You've got to ease into it. But since I'm making up a story, just let me make it up. I want to be best friends with you. I say, great. I wouldn't say that, by the way, but I say, great, let's be best friends. Let's go hang out and do all kinds of stuff. And then I turn to my wife and say, hey. And they say, wait, 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 just a second. Just one thing. I don't really care for Shannon. That's my wife. I don't, I don't really care for her. So if we can hang, um, but maybe you can figure something to do with her just so it's because I don't really like her that much. That would be a problem, right? That, that would be a problem. We, 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 we can't hang out. We can't be close. We can't be best buddies. And you, you have a problem with my wife. It just doesn't work. So in the natural sense, we understand that, but we so easily try to divorce God's bride, I mean Christ's bride or the church, from a rich and satisfying relationship with Jesus. It simply doesn't come in that color. So this local church is really, really important. I believe in the local church. The local church is, is, is done, it's done wonders for my life. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a preacher. I'm just saying that because I've been in church my whole life. I've seen the good and the bad and the ugly, and I've come to find that there's way more good than there is bad and ugly. The local church is a beautiful thing. It's God's thing. And so what we see here in this passage is a committed group of folks who are rallying around a common cause, and that cause is Christ. You don't see a hint of this community being optional. Well, maybe we'll engage, or maybe if we get around to it, or maybe if, if, if it's kind of, if it, if it suits me, I'll go, this is what they did, this is who they are. And so I think there is some truths that we have to understand about the local church. I believe that what God wants to do in the earth, particularly by way of fixing what's broken with it, he will do largely through the local church. What God wants to do in the earth, what he wants to fix, particularly, and there's plenty, plenty that's broken, God's going to do it through the local church. I have, I have very little faith in politics, especially these days. Very little faith in what's going on in Washington, and I have no hope that they'll eventually get it together and it begin to turn around the things that are broken with this world. I have very little faith in that. I, I know by now that Christ and his church... It's the only thing that's going to turn things around. I also happen to believe that what God wants to do specifically in you and in me by way of fixing what's broken, by way of uh, transforming you into a person that he wants you to be, he's made you to be, God will largely use the local church to do that. I'll say that again. What God wants to do in you and what he wants to do in me by way of fixing what is broken he will largely do through the vehicle of the local church. And all of a sudden, it seems really foolish to treat that as optional. It seems really foolish to take or leave that. It really seems foolish to get in your feelings about whether or not you're going to engage Christian community because it's so valuable, it's so non-negotiable in the life of believers. One other powerful truth is simply that God doesn't give anybody everything. God doesn't give anybody everything. I know your mom told you you're special and that you're self-sufficient and that you don't need nobody. But let me tell you, we need each other. Because God didn't give anybody everything and I need you. Because he didn't give me what he gave you. He didn't give me what he gave you. And so I need you for my life to be complete. I need you to see God and to see this world as I should see it. Friends, we are better together all because we value this rhythm of Christian community. So I want to give you this morning three practical ways to engage Christian community and to take this out of an optional sphere and install it as one of the healthy rhythms of your life. The first practical way that you can engage Christian community is just through the weekend service, through the weekend church service. And you're wondering what that is, you're here now. 
okay? Through the weekend service, through this. And this is important because I've, been, I've met a number of you over the last few weeks, and I know that many of you are church shopping, and don't let anybody tell you that church shopping is a bad thing. Now, church hopping is questionable. If your motives are impure from going from place to place and refusing to get settled, that's one thing. But church shopping is not a bad thing. And I know that in a room this size that there are folks who are church shopping. You're checking us out. You're trying to figure out if you're going to engage or not. If you've been church shopping for a while, you might be tempted to sit on the bench for a while. You might get fatigued with the process and decide, you know what, we got Bibles at the house. Jake's comes on at 3 o'clock. Osteen after that. Why can't we just, you know, stay in our jammies and have breakfast in front of the TV and do our own study? Nothing wrong with watching Jake's and Osteen if you're into that sort of thing. Um, But there's nothing to replace the local church. Verse 42, they devoted themselves. That word is very important. This is not optional. This is a commitment. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread, breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, communion. We'll take communion next week. And to prayer. Verse 46, every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. Talk about rhythm. Talk about often. You know, talk about regular every day. Now, say, preacher, are you trying to segue into us, into a a daily service? You trying to tell us something? No, I'm not trying to switch things up here. I'm just trying to point out that this was a regular rhythm of their life. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Regular rhythms, pattern. And that highlighting of the temple courts and the meetings that happened there is a way of highlighting their formal meetings or their formal practices of worship. Formal gatherings like this where we come together and do corporate worship together. The temple course was, just imagine a large meeting space. Some scholars suggested it could possibly hold several thousand people. And I'll take that for those of you who think that mega churches are bad, right? Several thousand people all engaging in corporate worship. Now, these folks didn't just come to hang out and see what sister so-and-so was wearing or what brother so-and-so drove up in. These people came to worship. Worshiping with God, I'm sorry, worshiping God in the company and in the fellowship of others. Let's not switch that around. They didn't come to meet people and do a little worship on the side. They came to the temple court specifically to worship God. It's one thing that we always say about worship is that worship isn't about you. It's not about you. And so once you figure that out, you church shoppers, that should inform your church shopping. That should tailor the list of things that you're looking for. That, that, should, that, should, that should tailor the non-negotiables on your list when you consider that you're not looking for the right paint color and the right carpet, the right murals in the children's room. Oh, while you love good music, that's not the defining characteristic. You're looking for a place where you can go and you can meet the Lord. A place where you can show up and bring an acceptable offering of worship to him. This is the essence of what it means to come into this place. And so lots of other things happen. We meet and hang out. There's coffee and there's lemonade and there's Subway and there's really awesome people. I'm really sold on this church if you haven't figured that out by now. But we don't really come here for all of that. What we come here to do is worship the true and living God. Worship is not about what I get. Preach me happy, preacher. Sing me happy, choir. Don't go too long, preacher. Entertain my kids. No, a worshiper comes to worship. And what they're preoccupied with is they're looking over their sacrifice to see, is there blemishes in this thing? Is this a suitable offering to bring before the Lord? Is my heart right as I come to worship? Is this this acceptable to the Lord? That's what I'm preoccupied with when I come into his house. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about worshiping the Lord, and they regularly 
did this. We regularly get this wrong, though. We pick churches. We pick the wrong church for the wrong reasons. Worship is about sacrifice and offering. Now, the interesting thing about worshiping corporately with people, I told you God doesn't give everybody, uh, anybody everything, which means that your offering is going to look different from my offering. You're going to bring your gift and your talent. You're going to bring your worship. And if you're Alicia, one of our worship leaders, you're going to be sitting, standing on this stage using your voice to worship the Lord. Some of you, we won't allow you anywhere near this stage because there's microphones up there. And the Lord needs to hear you, but we don't really need to hear you. Some of you have the gift of help and hospitality, and you love just making sure everything's okay, making sure the candles look nice. You love offering suggestions about how we can beautify the place. Some of you are are workers, and you say, I'll set up the chairs. I'll clean the building. Others of you are tender with the kids, and you say, that's what I'm going to bring. Part of my offering is that. And we all bring our little different pieces. And again, it's not about us. It's not particularly to be consumed by us. We're all bringing a different offering. But guess what? We get to do all that in the same room, together. And say, on the count of three, release your offering unto the Lord. And the singer sings. And the drummer drums. And the person who's good at hospitality, hospitalitizes, or whatever you call that. (laughs) And we release all of that together together. And that goes up pleasing offering to God. And God comes and dwells in the midst of that. And guess what? While that stuff isn't for us, we just happen to be in a room when it all happens. And something happens, man. Lift our voices and sing. Encouragement. Preacher brings his gift and he brings the word. Convicts our hearts. Encourages us. Turns the light on so that we can see God in a more excellent way, and we're transformed through that. Something happens through that corporate worship. Something happens through that. All those offerings of worship gets released. God dwells in the midst of that. And so something begins to transform on the inside of us when we saw this as a regular pattern in our life. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm chapter 73. Excuse me as I sort of fix this thing today. Psalm chapter 73. And so in the opening of this psalm, you can read it in your spare time. Much like a few other of the psalms, the psalmist is having a really bad time. And this psalm opens with him complaining to God. The psalmist says, listen, I almost slipped. I almost backslid. I'm, 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 I'm in a bad way here. And he goes on to tell why he's in a bad way, why he's frustrated, why he's angry with God. And he says, look, basically the long and short of it is, Um, It looks like the good guys are losing and the bad guys are winning. Looks like I've kept myself pure for nothing. Lord, it seems like your justice isn't quite working. And I'm frustrated in my walk with the Lord. I'm frustrated. There's no joy in my salvation. I'm having an issue with this. I'm having a problem. You read through about 16 verses of this guy complaining and explaining the problem. You get around verse 17, and this is what the psalmist says. Then I went into your sanctuary. Then I went to worship. Then I went into the sanctuary to offer uh, sacrifices of worship along with the people there. Then I went to worship, and I understood the destiny of the wicked. He continues, then I realized that my heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you, Lord. Yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail and my spirit might grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. It's almost like a different guy wrote the second half of that. This guy was tripping. He was in his fields. He was beside himself because he couldn't make sense of who God had become in his life. Challenges and the stresses and the unfairness of life had caused him to forget what he already knew about God. That God is good. That God is for him. That God is just. And nobody can escape his justice. And he didn't recover that perspective until what happened? Until he went to the sanctuary. Didn't recover a right perspective until he went to God's house to worship. 
went to God's house and heard the scriptures read out loud. Went to God's house and steadied his thoughts and his hearts on the Lord. He says, then I went to the sanctuary to worship. So all of a sudden, this is not so optional. This is not so something that we can take or leave. This is something that we really, really need. And so we've worked really hard to structure this place as a place where you can meet God when you come here because meeting God changes everything. And so we have to work really hard to keep it that way. And by keep it that way, we have to work hard to make sure that this is a place where you can actually come to meet God. There's a whole lot of rabbit trails we can chase, a whole lot of programs we can run, a whole lot of stuff we can do, and we look up and God doesn't really even come to church anymore, at least our church. So we work hard to make sure that Christ is at the center of this thing so that if you wander in here on a good day or a bad day or anything else in between, you're liable to run smack dab into the person, the presence of God. Weekend services are one practical way, corporate worship is one practical way to engage in this rhythm of Christian community. I continue, second thing is uh, to, to, to get into a rhythm of small groups. Every church doesn't offer small groups, but our church, that's one of the practical ways that we do community life together. And for those of you who don't know what small groups are, small groups are simply, uh, we don't have a midweek service, but we do have groups that meet throughout the week. Some of them meet in homes, some of them meet in coffee shops. Um, There's really a wide range of ways and locations where these small groups can meet, but this is an opportunity for people to connect throughout the week and do life together. There's usually a Bible study component. There's usually a fellowship component. There's usually a ministry prayer component where you can get prayer for things that you need. But there's heavy fellowship. You're doing life with people. Verse 46 says, Every day they met, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. That's a form of worship. But then it says they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. So we get a sense of corporate community life. It's happening in the temple, corporate worship. But we also see, and I mean, you blink, you'll miss it, there's small groups happening. There's stuff happening in people's homes. And this is a more informal expression of worship. Again, these aren't just parties where we're just going to hang out. We're going to hang out and going to fellowship with a purpose. And that purpose is very similar to what we experience in our corporate uh, settings. But we're just doing it on a small, small, informal worship meetings small informal worship meetings that lean heavy on fellowship and interpersonal relationships. If you'd asked me years ago why people come to church as a lifer in church, as a person who spent my whole life in church, I would say something like people come because they want to meet the Lord. They want to meet God. They want to drink deep of the word. And you say something, something religious, I would say something religious. But you ask me now after seven years of pastoring this church, why people generally come to church, even if they might not articulate it this way, people come to church to make friends. People come to church to make friends. They heard that there's people in here, and they've heard that there's a good chance that those people might not stab me in the back. They might not, you know, talk about me. Now, depending on on what church you've been to, you might not come to that conclusion, right? But if you're just looking for a place to meet some people and looking for a place to get your relational itches scratches, many people, their first stop is the Christian church. And so we believe that this relational component is super important to what God wants to do within us. And we often say that while our corporate worship experience is deeply meaningful, that the real transformation, the real relational life, the real nitty-gritty stuff that what God wants to do in your heart doesn't happen in rows, but it happens in circles. You're seated now in rows. You're not getting a whole lot of meaningful relational uh, uh, sort of uh, experiences facing the back of somebody's head, right? This is deeply meaningful. I just spent a few minutes talking about that. But real life happens in circles, not rows. Face-to-face, life-on-life. And you ask some folks who were really skeptical about small groups when they came here, say, I'm not going to anybody's house. I don't know those people. I don't know what's in their house. You have something at the church, I'll come to that, but I'm not going to somebody's house. 
Now those same people, when we break for small groups, I'm getting an email every week. Is small group start this week? Is small group start this week? No, I told you last week we're taking a break for the summer. Why are they so, why are they so sold on this, right? Because something happened when they sat a, on somebody's couch. Something happened when they engaged that small group and they met the Lord there. Maybe the Bible study wasn't that great, but that wasn't the real point of this group in the beginning. Maybe the, the snack wasn't the, you know, the casserole they had wasn't that great, uh, but they, they, they made some friends there. They met some people who will miss them when they are gone. When they had surgery, their small group showed up. When they had a baby, somebody organized a meal train and made sure that that, that, that load was a little lighter. Uh, and they met Jesus in that group through people that cared about them. God's hardwired us for fellowship. And while I love the Sunday morning meeting, you don't get the best of that in this space. You get the best of that in smaller groups, in circles, and not rows, face-to-face, life on life. The greatest aspects of real Christian community is that you get some friends. And no, they're not perfect. Yes, they're in process. Yes, they make mistakes. Yes, they can be selfish. Yes, they can drop the ball just like you do. Many of them full of God's Spirit and the care about you. And so my challenge to many of you is to not neglect the small groups that we offer. Not neglect that. If it's new to you, I'm challenging you to take a leap and to try it. I'm challenging you. And so you'll have an opportunity directly after service. We have a small group fair back there, those tables back there. They'll have a little desserts to entice you to come over and talk to them. And all of our small group leaders will be back there. And I'm really excited about this session of small groups. We have our first bilingual small group starting in the fall, in just, a, in just a couple of weeks, English and Spanish. We've prayed for that. For years, we prayed for that. And the Lord sent us somebody who could do that. Single ladies small group is launching in the fall. Men's Bible study, women's uh, group. Listen, this is, this is like God wants to really do some heavy lifting in our hearts through this. And so this is a part of our community life experience. This is a part of the rhythms of community life that God wants you to install in your life, don't neglect the small groups. So the third practical way, as I wrap this up this morning, is reaching out to others. Talk about the weekend service. We talk about the small groups. But as I read through this, this last little line in this, in this, in this little passage that I read here really speaks to this idea of reaching out. And I almost didn't include it because in some ways it didn't seem like it fit. But I think it's important for us to consider that the local church is not the end, but rather it's, it's the means. It's not the end, but it's one of the means that God uses to do what he wants to do on the earth. And so I often speak of the multi-ethnic church. We're a beautifully multi-ethnic church. And I go all over talking about the multi-ethnic church. And I've been saying lately that the multi-ethnic church is not the goal. It's not the end. You don't arrive when you have a diverse church. But the diverse church is to help you see people the way God sees them so that when you leave out of your multi-ethnic church, you have a value for different types of people and you can bless the world around you in a way that you couldn't bless them when you were living your small homogeneous life. Does that make sense what I'm saying? So in the same way, the local church here is not the end. You haven't arrived if you found the local church. You've made a really big first step, but it's not the end. It's the means. Because when you come into corporate worship and you begin to see God for who he really is and you start to look in the mirror of God's word and you see God for who he really is and that reflection of you broken and needing help and a tune-up faces back at you, you have some sense of what you need to work on and you can work on that within the context of Christian community together. You go to a small group and you get to share your life. You may get vulnerable and share some secrets and some people get in your face and pray with you and keep you accountable and check on you throughout the week. And that continues, right, to give you just another sample, another taste of who Jesus is. And you can't engage all of that without feeling moved to take that to the world around you. The church is just the means and it's not the end. And so for those of us who think this is the end, we'll see that church die 
after a while because they won't be compelling new people to come in. They'll be doing the opposite. They'll be sabotaging growth. And so a new person comes and they sat down and rather than being excited, you're concerned that they're sitting in the seat that you normally sit in. Sister comes in, new, and she's wearing a micro mini skirt, and you just can't wait to give her a dirty look, but you don't know that's the most wholesome thing she's got in the closet. She dressed up to come here. That's her best. And so rather than seeing her as a person made in God's image of much worth and value, some of the saved, sanctified sisters take her under a wing and just, you know, work with her, disciple her, love on her, even in her brokenness, and to see her transform, instead of doing that, we take to doing the opposite because we've, we, we, we thought somehow that this is the end. We've arrived because we go to church on Sunday morning. No, this is the means. This is the means. And what we do here is we get filled up. We get encouraged. And we take a little sample spoon, maybe two, and we take them out into the world and say, hey, try this. Then you go to Sam's. I go to Sam's Club. If you go to Sam's on the right day, <laughs> at the right time of day, you don't have to eat that week. <laughs> because they have these delicious samples. And so I'm walking down the aisle, and this girl's job is to give me a sample, and my job is to act like I haven't been down this aisle already. <laughs> Toaster strudel, sir? Really? really? Uh, sure. So I try it. And it's delicious. Sometimes it's not delicious. And I don't care where it is in the store because I'm not buying that. But other times, it's delicious. And you know what I ask? Where is this? Like, what aisle is this in? Now, if they're smart, they got the sample right next to the thing so you could taste it in like, but not all the time is that the case get a little taste. and say, where can I get more of this? You say aisle seven. And you go to aisle seven, you get you one, and now you're hooked. And so that's how this is supposed to work. We come in here, we worship the Lord, we release our offerings, some of that comes down, and the same buckets that we brought our offering in somehow gets filled with God's sweetness and goodness, and what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to take that bucket and say, hey, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And you can tell people, I have a reasonable expectation that if you come to my church, you can meet Jesus. We might not always get it right. Sometimes the band is a little off. Sometimes the preacher is is not quite in rhythm. But I have a reasonable expectation that if if, if you like what I just, that if you come back here, you can meet Jesus. There's more. There's more. There's more. And guess, guess, guess who the sample spoon is? You. So if you're acting a fool, and if you're so mean that people have to you know, tie you up to feed you, if you, you can't be bothered, if you don't have eyes to see what God is doing around you, you being rude to the cashier and stiffing, you know, the waitress. And you don't put your cart back. Christians put their cart back. I think that's in the Bible somewhere. It's in the back. <laughs> then what you've given people a taste of is something that they certainly don't want any more of. And so you're the sample spoon. And so if you, if you, if you, if you won't be a good sample, first of all, Stop wearing your vineyard t-shirts. <laughs> but my guess is that you want to be a part of giving people a taste of what you've experienced. And so more than just getting in a rhythm of corporate worship, which is awesome, and more than getting in a rhythm of small group life, I think that Jesus might want us to get in a rhythm of reaching out to others. Scripture says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. How do you think that happened? Through Facebook? You think they had a good marketing program? You think they sent out mailers? 
No, because when those people experienced God, they went to their jobs. They went home. They went to the market. And people couldn't make sense of how awesome their life was. People couldn't make sense of how they dealt with grief in such a sane way. People couldn't make sense of how well uh, people were treating their wives and husbands. They said, let me go. Where do you get this from? I want to try it. And so when they would come and see, the church would grow and grow and grow. And look around this room. That's what's happening here. We're growing. We're having to add staff, and our classrooms are busting at the seams. We had to restructure some parking last week. Listen, this is happening here, but it's got to continue to go. So the rhythm of community life is probably what many of you are needing. You say, I come to church once a month. I come to church when I'm not working, this, that, and the other. No, no, no. God wants you to establish a rhythm of this and watch what happens in your life as this becomes a priority. Worship team, you can come up as I close. So some of you are church shopping, and you'll need to get serious. And you'll need to have to seek the Lord about what's really non-negotiable on your list of non-negotiables. Others of you, you need to really get, get serious about membership. Maybe you need to meet with the pastors and talk about what it means to take the next step. Others of you, you know, the next step for you is to engage a small group. Maybe for many of you, the next step for you is get serious about inviting others. Listen, the whole, on that back table, there's a whole stack of uh, uh, cards with our church address, all website, whole deal on it. Take a stack of those and give them away. Maybe that's the next step for you. Maybe that's what it means for you to take that next step, to make this a rhythm of community life. Whatever the next step is for you, engage it and watch God do something wonderful in your life. Let me pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for the church. Thank you, Lord, that you allow us to be stewards of this and to partake in this, Lord. We just ask, Father, whatever the next step is for us, whatever it means for us to take this more seriously, Father, I pray that you would, you would just move us in your direction. Lord, help us to take this seriously. Lord, help us in general to just establish a rhythm of life where all the moving parts, Lord, talk to each other and they rally around the common bit, uh, beat common rhythm, and Lord, for those of us whose life is hard, Father, I pray that you would shine the light of your truth so that we can see you for who you really are, so we can see ourselves for who we really are and where we really are. And Father, as we worship you today through music and song, which is what we've come here to do, to worship you, I pray, Lord, that we would be preoccupied with nothing more than giving you glory, honor, and praise. And as we worship you today, Father, I pray that you would continue to till the soil of our heart so that your truth can go deep and so we can bear much, much fruit. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.